Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Tonight, we're holding a food for thought discussion about alternative proteins being devised, manufactured, and marketed here in California. Plant-based and lab-made meat, cheese, ice cream, and even fish are appearing more regularly on restaurant menus and supermarket shelves, and many of the companies creating them are based here in the Golden State. The age of animal protein, with its environmental, ethical, and health baggage, seems to be giving way to the age of alternative protein. But are these newfangled proteins all they're supposed to be? Critics say they're heavily processed, contain lots of non-natural ingredients, and aren't that great for our health. And will they shut down the industry of cattle ranching and poultry farms? Or is there an eco-friendly way to have our animal proteins without the guilt? Join us for a fabulous food-focused discussion with chefs, scientists, and food developers about the latest efforts to rethink and revamp animal and animal-free proteins. Hi everyone, welcome to California Groundbreakers. We're a civic engagement organization focusing on innovators doing groundbreaking things around the state of California. I'm the executive director of Vanessa Richardson and this is our first event of 2020, a new year and a new decade. And tonight is a very, it's gonna be a fun discussion I know and it's definitely a very food driven one. We're gonna be looking at and talking about food, but we're going to be talking about specific types of food, plant-based food, food uh, cured, lab cured meat, um, all these terms that I as an individual uh, consumer don't really know the difference between this or that, but I definitely hear a lot about Impossible Burgers, uh, Beyond Meats, Meatless Meats, um, vegan cheese, uh, dairy, plant-based dairy. So I just personally am interested in having this discussion because I want to know what kind of food I will be eating in the future. And obviously this is something that uh, California has played a big role in because uh, a lot of these companies like Impossible Burgers and Beyond, Impossible Foods, I'm sorry, that makes the Impossible Burger and Beyond Foods are based here in California. So. Again, like we typically do as a state, we're starting a trend that is uh, going nationwide and, and worldwide as well. So we got together a great panel of uh, foodies, uh, scientists, um, and experts to talk about what all this uh, food that we considered impossible maybe a few decades ago is now uh, on the menus and on our plates. I wanted to give a few special thanks to people who helped put this event together before we get started with the panelists. First off, we're holding this event in our lovely regular venue called Antiquity Midtown in Midtown Sacramento. So special thanks to our hosts, Sharon Wilson and Marcy Hose for hosting us. Also, again, uh, to our caterer, Burger Patch, who served food, sorry podcasters, you're, that you can't partake, but they are, I guess, the first vegan fast food, rest, uh, fast food restaurant in Sacramento, perhaps, definitely one of the most innovative, and they're opening up a branch in Davis very soon, and they're doing gangbusters, so thank you for providing the, the burgers and the shakes. 
Also, we could not do these events without uh, our fantastic volunteers. So I also want to call them out on the podcast. Uh, Joseph Hickman, Nicole Grant-Krieg, Rod Ramirez, and Janelle Justinson, thank you very much for giving your time and your hands for handing up uh, burgers, drinks, and tickets. Also to Caleb Clark and Nate Graham of Kickstart Audio for recording the programs, um, putting them online, and making us all sound good. Of course, to our panelists who are taking time out of their busy schedule, who have driven from uh, far-flung places to join us tonight, thank you very much. And of course, to you, the audience, for coming here, buying burgers and shakes, and taking time out of your busy day to come listen. So I wanted to start um, introducing the panelists, or honestly, I had the panelists introduce themselves. And besides asking them their name and their uh, organization or who they work for, um, or what they're about. Uh, a personal question is something I typically ask as well. This one obviously is about food, plant-based food. So I wanted to know right now what you're really um, craving uh, in terms of a food, plant-based, maybe not plant-based or um, vegan or not, but something that uh, you don't make yourself. I know there's a few companies up here that do make produce food. Uh, if there's something that you uh, are really jonesing for, lately that you like to eat um i want i want some recommendations because i just had my first plant-based burger tonight and it was very good so i want more why don't we start uh at the very end and go towards me so we're going to start with the gentleman on the far right okay uh, my name is stephen leopold and i'm here representing burger patch i uh, I'm the general manager in the restaurant uh, that we have on K Street currently, and I'm also the chief operating officer for Burger Patch. Um, and I, I've actually, in the last uh, four and a half months, I, I made a switch to a completely plant-based diet. Um, previously was eating a mostly plant-based diet. Um, and the one thing that I, I think I was most worried about craving and not being able to find was sushi. Um, but I have... I've been able to satisfy that craving very well, actually, uh, right here in Sacramento at Midtown Sushi. I don't know if anyone knows Midtown Sushi, but they have fantastic vegan options. If, uh, if you haven't tried them, I highly recommend it. So, Thank you, Steve. That's a good choice. I will. Midtown Sushi. And thanks again for bringing the food. Uh, also, I should mention that Stephen is stepping in. Uh, we did have a panelist, Anthony, uh, Chef Anthony from Hook and Ladder. He had a kitchen emergency that he could, could not get out of. So unfortunately, he couldn't make it tonight. Uh, so Stephen graciously is stepping in for him. So thanks also for that. And to our next panelist. Hello, everybody. My name is Doni Kirkendall. I am Vice President of Operations and Logistics at the Better Meat Co. We are very proud to be based here in Sacramento, and we're a B2B plant-based ingredient manufacturer, and we sell our ingredients to meat companies to blend with their meat. So I'm excited to talk to you guys about that a little bit. Um, I love plant-based food, and I've been obsessed with corn's meatless, spicy uh, patty, chicken patty. It's absolutely delicious. You can have it cold or warm. I don't care. I just throw it on a bed of lettuce or something, and it's absolutely delicious, so I highly recommend it. Yum. All right. Thank you. Next panelist. All right. Uh, my name is Hermes Cabrab. I'm a professor at the University of California, Davis. And what I study mostly is uh, the environmental impact of uh, livestock, uh, particularly looking at into uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, from livestock and how we can reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, in terms of what, what I'm craving, well, I, I try to eat a, a balanced diet. Um, so 
uh, a, a lot of vegetables and fruits, uh, as well as uh, animal source foods, be eggs or meat or dairy. Um, I... There's got to be one thing, though. One thing. It doesn't have to be plant-based. Well, I mean, today, I mean, the, what we ate today was quite, quite good. I, I, I quite enjoyed it, so I definitely will have it again. And just quickly, Urbanus, I did want to ask, because I saw that you are the director of the UC Davis Food Center, World Food Center. Is that, what's the correct title? And what is that all about? Because I really haven't heard much about that. I don't know if, I, if, there's a, if that's a new organization. Can you tell us about that? Right, yeah. So I'm the director of the World Food Center. So the World Food Center, basically, what it's trying to do is three things. It's trying to uh, connect people. Uh, we have uh, over 60 centers that deal with food at UC Davis. So you can imagine people wanting to engage with somebody, with, with a faculty at UC Davis, they, they, they get completely lost. And people, in, even with, within UC Davis, they don't know, uh, they might not know who is working in what uh, area. So the World Food Center basically tries to connect people from outside, also inside. And also it, it tries to uh, convene uh, different kind of discussions. The, the last discussion we had was about uh, discourse in, uh, in scientific communication and how we communicate with public. Um, and, and we then we also communicate. So the, the three C's, uh, connect, convene, and communicate. So that's, that's what the World Food Center is trying to do. Will you be talking with Alice Waters? I think that just came out the news that there's an Alice Waters Institute that's opening up at Davis's Aggie Square in Sacramento. So are you going to collaborate with her? Maybe, hopefully? Well, uh, I think her focus is a little bit different from what we do because the focus there is K-12 education. So it's heavily focused on education, on uh, gardening and, and growing food and, and things like that. So that's, it's the, yeah, the focus is completely different. Okay. I just had to bombard you with those questions right off the bat. So thank you. All right. And next panelist. Uh, my name is Jamie Cavanaugh. Hello. There we go. Uh, Jamie Cavanaugh, and I am with Pearsall Plant-Based Eats, a restaurant I'm opening in East Sacramento next month. Uh, fingers crossed that everything <laughs> goes accordingly. Um, <clears throat> and as far as, I guess, food I would be craving would be, um, I'd say pizza, because I haven't had it in a while. I'm trying to lay off the carbs a little bit. And um, I know there's a lot of places that are popping up around here that are going to offer that. So I'm excited to see what they come up with. And good looking getting the, the place open. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been fun. The holidays put a little uh, delay on quite a few things. Everybody's on vacation, but uh, we're back up and getting stuff together. So, And last but not least. Hi, everyone. I'm Isaac Goldman. I'm the head of business development at Eclipse Foods. We're a plant-based dairy company based in Berkeley, California. Uh, and my favorite food that I've been eating recently has been the Beyond Breakfast Sausage Sandwich at Dunkin' Donuts. It's really good. If you're ever on the go or need a quick bite, highly recommend it. So. And at the end of the event, uh, again, for people who showed up in person, we're getting free ice cream. Isaac brought some ice cream. What flavor? Uh, chocolate. It's the winner. All right. So stick around till the end so we can get our, our scoop. Uh, and thank you very much, all panelists, for coming. Um, so I have a question for each of you, and I'm going to start with Joni. Because, again, it feels like a lot of this conversation started around the Impossible Burger and Beyond Burger and the meatless meats. And so this is an uh, area that uh, the Better Meat uh, Company is in. So I was just wondering if you could just give us an overview about... Um, 
You know, what's going on in the space? Because it sounds like, you know, Tyson Foods and, and uh, Foster Farms and, and all these companies are really taking a look uh, in this area and particularly at the, at the meat, Burger King, right, and White Castle and Dunkin' Donuts. So um, in terms of national beef and poultry companies looking at this area and having talks with companies like yours, uh, what's, what's involved in those discussions? And then, of course, you know, what, what, what is Better Meat um, seeing and doing in terms of introducing meatless meat into the meat industry? Sure. Um, so it's really exciting to see a lot of these companies like Impossible, like Beyond, that are providing delicious products that look, taste, smell just like meat. Um, and so I'm sure everybody has seen them. They're here tonight. Um, we really, really support them. We hope they continue to succeed. And I personally really enjoy their products. Um, we are different in that we create plant-based ingredients that we blend with meat. So we are actually looking to work with meat companies to help meet them or to help them meet their sustainability efforts um, and so we're really focused on making a change today again impossible beyond their great great products but they are the Teslas of the world right now right they're less than one percent of the market out there are all electric cars they're great they're awesome we hope that people continue to use them but ultimately like uh, Tesla the the meatless meat uh, products are less than 1% of the market. So we want to target the rest of that. We know that meat consumption is going up and it's only going to continue to increase. And so we want to work with those companies to say, here, we have a solution for you where you can use less meat. You can have less saturated fat, less cholesterol, fewer calories, and we add fiber to our products. So not only are you getting the meat that you want, um, you're getting the texture, the flavor, the juiciness, but you're also getting some added fiber, some vegetable nutrition. And so we believe that there's a huge opportunity. And thankfully, like you mentioned, companies like Tyson, like Purdue, are starting to realize that this is an opportunity. This is a way for them to get into the plant-based space. They're understanding that their customers are asking these questions and they want better products. And so we want to help them create those products. So the discussions are, are pretty uh, uh, flowing and, and they're very open and interested in hearing what, 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 how they can get into this area. Absolutely. Okay. Um, we are working hand in hand with meat companies who also want to make an effort to reduce the emissions, to reduce the amount of crops that are needed, um, to make their products better. And we are there, we're the plug and play. We're here to help them serve their customers, to help them meet their sustainability efforts, and to help them create better products, better for the planet, better for animals, and better for you. Great, thank you. And then my next question is for you, Isaac, because you're uh, with another uh, manufacturer or uh, um, in this in this area. I think I read a quote from one of the founders that uh, Eclipse Foods wants to be the impossible foods of dairy, and so ice cream is just the beginning. And you are based where in San Francisco, Emeryville, Berkeley? Yeah, Berkeley. Berkeley. Okay, so obviously there's a lot of activity going on in the Bay Area. A lot of venture capital funding uh, being. Uh, in, not thrown into this area, but maybe uh, invested. And probably this is a big area that they're looking at. But give us an overview of what's going on in the Bay Area. Since so much of the um, discussion is happening there, a lot of the foods have been coming out of there. And then in terms of how Eclipse Foods is changing things up and how you plan to do in the dairy space. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we actually, we work on 8th Street in Berkeley, California. And just on that street, there is over, th there's three to four plant-based and lab-based meat companies. So it's totally a hub for um, plant-based foods and really the, the future of food. Uh, and there is a lot of investment going into it. Um, power plant ventures, S2G ventures, a lot of different venture capitalists in the food space as well as the tech space are investing in companies. Um, and kind of the way that we're shaking it up is instead of rebuilding milk or dairy products using nuts or cashews or coconut, which is what a lot of plant-based dairy products are made with today, we went out and we tried to recreate milk. So just like Beyond Meat is recreating meat from plants, we recreated milk at a molecular level. And we said, what are the combination of lipids, amino acids, vitamins, vitamins and minerals, and water? And we recreated that. And from that plant-based milk that we've created, are we've created this first plant-based ice cream, um, which we'll all try tonight, and I'm really excited about. Um, but that's just the beginning, right? We have the ability to make cheese that truly melts, um, yogurt that has that same creaminess, and that's because our milk is just like dairy milk in taste, texture, and functionality. It's just made from plant-based ingredients. And right now, you, uh, your ice cream ingredients, or you work with Humphrey Slocum, which is a, a very well-known and uh, desirable ice cream maker in San Francisco, in the, the Bay Area. You're working with them on making their ice cream? Yeah, exactly. So we actually sell our product into food service accounts, mainly ice cream shops right now, as a co-branded product. So if you were to go to Humphrey Slocum or Mitchell's Ice Cream, uh, both in San Francisco, you could get the Eclipse Coffee Ice Cream. Um, so you see our Eclipse brand name, but they spin up the flavors, and they're the flavor geniuses. So you get to try really fun flavors just made with our plant-based base. But is the plan then to go into, say, a supermarket with under the Eclipse brand? Exactly. Like the Ben and Jerry's or Yeah, whatever. so we're definitely focused on food service right now for the next, uh, for the future. But we will eventually go into retail and make Eclipse pints, of course. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, I'm very excited about the ice cream. Um, Armaeus. Next for you, I went to a panel discussion last year at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, and it was on the whole meatless meat. And Pat Brown, who's the CEO of Impossible Foods, he's a, a, a big name, he got a whole uh, profile about him in the New Yorker, so he's a big deal. He was very direct uh, in this discussion saying his goal, or one of his biggest goals, is to wipe out the livestock industry. He sees it as a big destroyer uh, of the environment, and so Impossible Foods was partly set up to, to, to make that happen. So he's very forthright about it. And I thought it was interesting. I, I wanted to bring you or your fellow Professor Frank Mit Mitlautner, uh, because you two have been very vocal as well in terms of um, uh, the impossible foods stance in their, their, their products. So I think I had you quote in the, in the press saying, the impossible burger is the factory burger. And you are the defending the livestock industry, um, saying it's more efficient and less destructive than our current public perception and what the media makes it out to be. So I wanted you to, to tell us you know, a little more about that, your stance, um, your concerns that you may have about meat like the Impossible Burger, Impossible Foods, and the misconceptions uh, about the livestock industry. In 30 seconds or less, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I think uh, I, I'd just like to start by saying that uh, it shouldn't be an either-or. I mean, uh, both plant-based burgers and, and, and uh, uh, meat um, could exist together, and, and it just depends on what people are, are looking for. I think the main thing is if, if you're making a decision based on facts, 
then that's that's all we're trying to, to to do. So if you're discussing about about meat, what are the benefits and why do people uh, consume meat? I mean, the the, the main thing is uh, in terms of the essential elements that that we get from meat. Um, in terms of the, the nutrients that, that, that we get, it is, um, you, you cannot get it just, just from consuming uh, plants. So there are groups of people that require, that need that, that, that essential elements from, uh, from meat. And the discussion has been that, okay, it will destroy the, the environment. So there are different aspects of, of, uh, of livestock production. So one is the nutrition that I was, I was talking about, and there's the, the environmental side uh, that has been made up as well. And so on the environment side, uh, a lot of people are uh, very surprised to, to hear that the, the contribution in the United States of uh, greenhouse gas emissions is, is less than 4% from, from the uh, livestock industry. And uh, I've, I've talked with some people in, in, at the World Food Prize in Iowa, no less, who, who are believing that plant production does not produce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And so there are this, this kind of misconceptions where that, that there, there is a way that you can, you can coexist and in terms of environment, uh, yes, there, there is an impact and the impact, there's more that needs to be done in order to reduce those, those impacts as well. Um, looking into what contributes to, to the environment in, in livestock is mostly methane. And if you look at methane, methane is, is biogenic, which, which means that it's, it's the carbon that the animal consumed from plants and it, it will go up into the air, it will stay in the air for about 10 to 12 years, and it, it gets destroyed and comes back into CO2 and, and comes back into the, into, the, uh, into the plant. So basically, it's a, it's a cycling of carbon. You're not adding anything into the carbon. So the, the biggest problem we have is um, carbon dioxide from transportation, from electricity, and, and things like that. So that's where the focus needs to be when you talk about the environment. So it's not really cow burps or cow uh, emissions that are... Uh, that are the big thing. I did. Did I read though that you are working on some kind of um, seaweed or some specific algae to feed to cows to reduce their cow their methane emissions? Yes, exactly. So when we when we talk about greenhouse gas emissions and methane, the, the biggest part is enteric methane, which is the the cow belching methane out. That's the, that's the majority of the of the impact. And uh, right now, there are different things that are that's happening. There are uh, methodologies that would reduce methane emissions. And at UC Davis, what we're doing now is we're feeding red seaweed, uh, asparagopsis, to cows. And we've, we've seen a reduction of about 60% in, in, in methane emissions by just feeding about half a percent of, um, of red seaweed. And in beef cattle, we, we've done a, a new study that, that, would, that will come out in the next couple of months uh, the, the effect is even bigger. So we can actually reduce the emissions by 80% by feeding half a percent, a quarter of a percent to a half a percent of, uh, of, of red seaweed to, 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 to cattle. So you can significantly reduce the environmental impact. Is that seaweed plentiful? At the moment, it's not. So th there is this work that's going on at um, San Diego University, uh, UC San Diego, where trying to understand about the seaweed and how we, how we grow it. Plant-based so, seaweed. Sorry? Plant-based seaweed? Uh, absolutely. I, I think seaweed is even better because... You, lab you, culture. Well, you, you don't need, need uh, fresh water. You don't need fertilizers. You don't need land. So it's even better. All right. So that study comes out in a couple of months, the results of the study that you... Okay. All right. So the innovations are in, the, in that lab too. So my last two questions are for the people who uh, put these products uh, 
on plates in the kitchen and in the in the restaurants. Stephen, I want to start with you since Burger Patch got its start, I believe, at Golden One Center as a pop up or so forth, um, or there alongs, and now you're opening up uh, uh, stores. And I think I read that the uh, co-owner Philip Horn is looking for Northern California domination, if not statewide. But I wanted to to know since you since you've started, I guess what notable. Um, what notable things have struck you since you've been in business in terms of like, did people come and look at Burger Patch and go, they thought it was, you know, like a McDonald's, but then when they realized, oh, wow, what was the reaction? Was it a very quick adoption, especially, you know, guys who go to, ba to basketball games? So were they on board really quick? And then in terms of, you know, people's tastes and preferences, uh, since you're, you've opened, what are they asking for? Do they want you to make uh, something that's not on the menu yet that that will be on the menu. So in terms of people's initial tastes and preferences and what you've seen uh, to date in terms of how they've changed. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> um, so we, we started out actually with a couple just random pop-ups where we took over a restaurant space uh, back in 2016. And that was more just to, to kind of see, you know, we my, my business partner, Phil Horn, his wife, Denea, who are the founders, you know, they had this idea and I think, the Beyond Burger um, being released kind of put that idea into reality because there was actually a product on the market that could stand up against a, a beef patty and, and do well. So we tested this out at a couple pop-ups. We had a fantastic response from the community. We had over a thousand people each day um, come out for the pop-up. Um, the Golden One Center was kind of our, our next leap from there. Um, and we opened our, our current space on K Street um, in May. And I think what I've seen that's just been kind of interesting to observe is that the people that are coming into the restaurant are, are really everybody. There's no, there's no age group or ethnicity or, or any type of background that I think is, is dictating who is searching for these options. I think where we come in is, is to really just serve as a bridge. Um, we're not trying to convert people into a plant-based lifestyle. Uh, we just want to make opportunities available and options available for people that are looking for them. And I think now there's just a lot of consciousness um, in how we eat and what we eat, the impact that it has on animals, some people that that's really important to them and the, the kindness in how they make decisions. Um, some people, the environmental factors, and that, that's probably not my area of expertise. Um, and then some people, it's, it's just I, I feel that eating less meat in my diet makes me feel better. So. Our goal when we opened Burger Patch was how do we make this feel um, as innocent as possible to the person who's probably a little skeptical, right? And I think when you say the word vegan, most people probably immediately think, well, that's not my diet. That's not going to taste good. I don't want to eat kale. Um, and, so, <laughs> and so that was our, our goal was can we make this look and feel and taste and satisfy exactly the way somebody would be looking for not necessarily to be a meat burger, but to satisfy the craving that they have. Um, and so that was, that was kind of what we came out first to do. And I think the, to answer your question, who it was, I think it really has turned into be everybody, um, which I think is really cool. Um, and as far as where people's tastes are going, uh, we actually have, if you go on our website, we, there's an entire secret menu that has been born really by demand. We, we didn't set out to create a secret menu. Uh, we actually set it out to create a simple menu because we felt choice, uh, limiting choice would make it easier. Um, but people would come in and they'd say, 
you know, hey, can I get a chicken patty on top of my burger? And we'd say, sure, why not? And so we basically started repurposing ingredients um, that has now kind of turned into this secret menu, which is a lot of fun for, I think, our, our diehard fans and, and just people that come in for the first time. So it's like uh, In-N-Out has their animal burger or whatever, their secret menu. You've got yours. So we, we do our patch style fries. And uh, my one of my favorites is the loaded fries um, or shovel spuds. That's basically got... Um, all three sauces on it. It's got cheese sauce. It's got a burger patty chopped up. It's got chicken tenders chopped up. Um, it's a meal in a basket, um, but it's delicious. <laughs> and what, what are some new additions? Because it sounded like you had a winter menu. So there's like a, a couple new additions there. Yeah, absolutely. One, one thing, so Phil's wife, Danea, um, she's a fantastic uh, cook. They both live a plant-based lifestyle and have for about a decade. Um, it was really important, I think, to Denea and Phil both just to have some creativity in the menu and be able to take advantage of seasonal ingredients that, that may be available at certain times of year. Um, so we do a, a seasonal offering, which is our opportunity to kind of go off menu a little bit and bring something new into the restaurant. Uh, right now we're, we're doing a, a chili um, using the Beyond Meat, and we're also doing a, a seasonal shake, which is our uh, wintry mix shake, which is a, a peppermint Oreo cookie shake, I guess, um, which is fantastic. Um, so it allows us to have some fun and creativity, and it also has allowed us to introduce some new products uh, into what we offer. Um, Beyond Meat has been a, a, a great partner to work with, um, but other companies that are springing up uh, very quickly now are bringing wonderful products to market, and we've been, been fortunate enough to be able to unveil some of those products here in, in Sacramento and Northern California. So. Great. And then, Jamie, uh, a similar question for you, too, because, I mean, you're about to open up your restaurant, but you've been doing pop-ups for a little while. And I wanted to ask, in terms of in the actual preparation and cooking uh, products in the kitchen, because I feel like, a, like a Stephen had mentioned, you know, vegan, some people think those veggie burgers, you know, that, ugh, or uh, kale, you know, kale and this. And But what have you seen in terms of um, when you have started uh, cooking in, down this road, how has, I don't know, everything from the texture of the products, the quality of the products, the actual cooking or, or preparing, has it gotten easier? Has it changed? Are there some items that uh, still you need to put your creative touch on because it's not as advanced yet as you would like it to be? So just in terms of preparing all this in the kitchen, what have you seen in terms of notable uh, changes along the way and maybe still needs a little work? that makes sense? Um, well, definitely there are a lot more options than there were a few years ago. Um, I've only actually been vegan for about two years. And even then, it was hard to find, you know, uh, products in the store that resembled, that there, well, there was Beyond Meat, but um, anything but. You couldn't really find a lot. And when I first went vegan, um, for the first like week, I ate Chipotle. So it was like beans and rice. I don't know what else I can eat, and I don't want to cook right now. What do I do? And it took me about three months to really um, kind of research all of the different substitute meats that are out there. And because um, I always say I have kind of a picky palate of like a kindergartner, um, where I want a burger, you know, and I want it to taste like a burger. I wanted fried chicken, but I, you know, what if I want it to taste like fried chicken, but I just don't want it to come from an animal. So that's where I, you know, kind of just researched. I'm like, okay, what can we do here? And that's where I found there's a seitan, which is a uh, wheat meat type of thing. Um, there's also, you know, um, of course, tofu and different things like that. But then um, a big one that I really like is jackfruit. And it is very similar to... Um, 
how do I explain, uh, like shredded beef almost or carnitas meat. Um, it takes on that kind of texture. And if you season it right and things like that, it, t- you know, I've cooked for family and they're like, I couldn't tell the difference. And I'm like, ha, that's what I thought. So um, I know, again, like I said before, there weren't that many options, but now there are. And it's just, it's awesome because for somebody like me that wants to be able to offer these things to people, um, we now have that available where we don't necessarily have to make everything from scratch, but I still like to, especially like my seitan. Um, I do use a company called Atlas Monroe, who's kind of blown up, and then now they are um, out of stock for quite a while. But um, they're amazing, and um, you know their type of products and just making it myself really taught me that it is possible to make the texture very similar and the flavor to be there. And it just doesn't have to come from an animal, so. Great. All right, so a question for all of you panelists. Um, when I was doing research, you know, and looking at what the media is uh, covering about this, I think one of the things, the, the questions that they ask is, you know, what is in this food? You know, what's in an Impossible Burger? Uh, are these all healthy ingredients? So for example, there was an article in the New York Times about the Impossible Whopper sold at Burger King. Uh, they didn't mention calorie count, but they did mention 21 ingredients, including genetically modified soy protein concentrate, coconut oil, sunflower oil, and other items most people have never heard of, such as cultured dextrose, soy protein isolate, zinc leuconate. So this is quote unquote from, from the article. So basically, how healthy are these plant-based proteins in foods that are produced mostly indoors? Uh, you know, what's the health concern that should we have uh, about these? I uh, think in recent states, some of these, you know, ingredients like amino acids, we may not get from them, we need from, you know, natural foods. So is there something that we should uh, be concerned about in terms of having these on a regular basis? Um, or are they healthy? Who would like to take that on? Doni. Um, sure. I just wanted to start out by saying, Jamie and Stephen, I'd love to talk to you guys about your menu, your creative menus, because we have some stuff to offer you guys. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to understand that or to remember that, you know, if you're going to Burger King or Carl's Jr., you're probably not seeking out a healthy diet. So, you know, <laughs> although it's great that they're offered and trust me, I love these products too, but although it's, it's a great way to make them accessible to the public, which I fully, fully support, um, I don't think that, you know, just the, the going to those places in general is, is probably the best for you if you're looking to have a healthy diet. Um, you know, yes, GMOs have been all over the news. People try to avoid GMO products, but, you know, we also need to remember that the majority of GMO crops actually go to feed livestock. Um, so if you're really concerned about reducing the amount of GMO intake, then meat consumption is probably not something that you should be doing, or maybe just reducing it a bit, if that's really a concern. Um, I think the good news is that people are asking these questions. The good news is that people are starting to um, have more variance in their diet. They're, they're trying new things. They're um, finding these awesome menus at Burger Patch and saying, and getting curious about it. Um, so that's the important part. Um, and they should continue to ask these questions. Ultimately, most of what we eat, a lot of what we ate tonight, a lot of what we ate for lunch, um, is processed in some way. 
um, it was processed indoors because somebody had to do something to your food um, to get it to its end, uh, you know, format. So I think, you know, yes, people should ask these questions. It's great that people are asking these questions, but it's also important to understand that we need to be more conscious of the fact that we need to innovate. Only technology is going to drive these innovations. Only through technology and investment in these tech, in these uh, industries are we going to get better products, healthier for you products. And we need to work with companies. We need to work with UC Davis and figure out how we can take you know, our current system and make it more sustainable? How can we make our crops better? How can we reduce the amount of meat that is consumed and instead provide people with a little boost of plant protein, plant, you know, fibers? Um, and so at the, at the Better Meat Co., that's really our focus is, you know, how can we work with what we have now? Meat consumption is going up here in the U.S., all over the world. So how can we make a difference now, today? Um, so I really think that people should be asking those questions and if you really want to get to a better product We should continue to innovate. We should continue to invest and uh, I think we'll get there Hermes? Sure. Um So I, I just read a, uh, an article in Washington Post. Uh, it was quite um, a balanced article that that uh, looked at different plant-based products and in terms of you know uh, why people are, are eating it, and the conclusion is that don't eat it for health reasons. There there is no there's no study there's 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 nothing that that shows that plant-based like with the Impossible Burger or or Beyond Meat, it's not it's not better for you than than meat or 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 any of the products. So in terms of health, if you if you're concerned about health. Don't do it. But if you're concerned about anything else, you know, it could be animal welfare or, or something like that, then that's absolutely fine. But it just, just uh, your, your question was about the health aspect. So the health aspect is still, is still out there. So we, we, need to, we need to work on that. Is the FDA or has the FDA uh, evaluated, uh, say, the Impossible Burger? Uh, do they, is this something under their purvey? Do you know, Romeus? I was just wondering how the FDA looks at, at this and that they have any you know, stance on it, or do they need to have a stance on it? Well, the, the, the FDA has to regulate what goes into the, into the, the food. So the, the, what we were describing earlier, the, the, the GMO, the, 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 um, the yeast and stuff that's been used to, to produce the, um, um, the, 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 the ingredient that, that makes it taste like, like meat, that has been approved by, by FDA. It's been back and forth. I think finally, I think it's, it's, been, it's, it's been approved. But in terms of the, the healthiness of any food, then the FDA does not really regulate that. All right, so I'd like to ask people in the audience to come up and ask their questions as well. I, I have a few more, but I know there's always some great ones at the, uh, out there in the audience. So if you're ready to just uh, come on at the mic and we'll, we'll call you. So while that's happening, I do have a question. I think someone had mentioned supply, supply and demand. It seems like there are some uh, supply issues. I think I remember when Impossible Burger 
uh, had a big shortage because they were supplying to Burger King right then, and, and our chef Anthony was quoted as saying, I can't get Impossible Burger, I have to, to switch to something else. So I was wondering in terms of, because the demand is going up, and I, I think I also read recently that Impossible Foods is going into pork, because Asia is a very uh, a big market uh, for pork, so they're going there. In terms of supply, um, will that be an issue, especially for the restaurant restaurants and the food manufacturers? And then in terms of, like I guess, lab production or the facilities uh, where this food will be... Um, uh, these ingredients will be put together and food will be made. Uh, is there an increase in, or does there need to be in terms of supply? Isaac, I'm curious too in terms of the Bay Area and what they're seeing in this, but what you're seeing in terms of your role about is the supply and the demand uh, equal? Um, and what? how do we make sure it's there when this keeps growing as it sh seems like it's going to be? So let me start with you, Isaac. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we believe in at Eclipse Foods is that we want to make plant-based dairy that is scalable. So you can run our product, our ice cream, on dairy ice cream machines. So there's no need to create any new machinery, um, no need to get any ingredients that you haven't heard of before. All of our ingredients you could buy at Whole Foods. We have no gums, no gels, no stabilizers. So when you think of the supply of our product, we have an endless supply because all the crops that we're using are simple commodity crops, right? There's nothing out there that you can't pronounce. Um, in terms of demand, we have the ability to scale our production to thousands of gallons a day. And because of that, we can meet the demand. Um, like Impossible Foods had struggled meeting that demand because they have their own machinery, they have other things that are really expensive. We don't need any expensive biotech, we don't use any GMOs, so we won't have any trouble meeting that demand. Uh, Jamie, what about you? Jamie and Stephen, in terms of supply, your suppliers, do you feel like you have to uh, expand your the people, uh, or I'm sorry, companies that supply you because um, they may be having some shortage issues, or is that is that not an issue right now, Jamie? Uh, um, well, I think it is kind of an issue, especially like I was mentioning with the Atlas Monroe. They, um, you know, they started out in the Bay Area and. They entered a national fried chicken competition and won. Um, they were the only vegan entry and they won the whole thing. And ever since then, um, they were actually on Shark Tank and turned down a deal from Mark Cuban and everything to be able to keep control of their business. But by doing so, they haven't been able to meet the demand they have. If you placed an order in October with them, they had something on their website saying, um, you might not get it until December or, and right now if you order it now, it's like May or something like that. So um, for me, I've had to, I'm like, okay, what other options are there? And I was always working on my own uh, version of a chicken, but um, or vegan chicken. And um, it was just that they were so popular and everything that, you know, I wanted to be able to offer them because they are really, really good. Um, but it does have like a very distinct flavor and spice. So I wanted to make something that was comparable to, um, to it, but you know, might be able to use like as a grilled chicken or something like that. So I just kind of, um, started researching a lot more companies that can offer different things. Cause I know there's beyond for burgers or impossible. Um, you know, there's just, uh, I know the corn place is another one. Um, so I think until they get 
you know, um, these companies can get up to par with the demand, you're going to have to have more variety, whether you make it yourself or find another company. Stephen, what about you, Burger Patch? Yeah, I can piggyback on that a little. So uh, it's definitely a unique challenge, uh, especially for a restaurant like us, where everything is somewhat specialty. You know, some restaurants may have the Beyond Burger on the menu. If it is out for that week, they can sell every other burger that they normally sell, um, whereas it affects us much differently. So I think it's a really cool problem to have. I, I think it's really, it's awesome to see that there's so much demand that these companies are having to pivot and, and find ways to increase distribution so quickly. Um, we are seeing a lot of companies raising right now. You know, everyone talked a lot about the Beyond Meat IPO, and there's just a, there's a lot of money being infused into this plant-based industry. I think to help scalability and to get production up to meet demand. Um, for us specifically, we've had to uh, adapt a little as we've grown. Um, we started out with one distributor for all of our products. Uh, we now work with uh, three different distributors, and that is because if one runs out of something, we always have a backup plan. Um, it still is not foolproof. I, I actually spent my morning today, it's pretty topical. I, I spent my morning today uh, running around to all the nuggets, um, searching for a holdover of a certain product until it came back in uh, on Thursday. So, um, you know, every now and then we have to make an, a, a, an adjustment. Um, but I believe the, the companies that will continue to lead and, and dominate in this space will continue to meet these challenges head on, pivot, and, and be able to meet the demand. All right, let's take our first question at the mic. Oh yeah, hi, thanks. Um, I'm just wondering, what's the, what's the definition or difference between a vegan diet, a plant-based diet, and a whole food plant-based diet? Steven. So, so I'll, I'll speak to it just because we talk a lot internally about it. Um, so, this is just coming from me and, and how we view it. Um, you know, the difference between a vegan diet and a plant-based diet, um, at least as I see it, is, is just really, um, it, it's semantics. It's how you're wording it. We actually don't use the word vegan in our restaurant. It's not on any of our materials or any of our signage. Um, we've actually trained our staff even to not use the word vegan just because, I, I, again, we're, we are looking to introduce new people to a new option. And um, I think plant-based takes a little bit of the scariness away from it um, and makes it feel a little bit more uh, inviting to everyone versus a certain group of people eating a certain diet. Um, a whole food uh, plant-based diet, I think, is where you're trying to cut out a lot of the processed foods and you're eating a lot more of your whole grains and whole vegetables. Um, but for us, we, we definitely embrace a, the, the term plant-based um, in our, our kitchen. I have, I have a question about that, though. I feel like um, this came up when I was talking with Isaac about uh, plant-based dairy. And I think I had mentioned, oh, it's, uh, is it lab-grown? And he said, no, it's, 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 it's in a lab, but it's plant-based ingredients. But then I've seen, you know, cell-based meats or, you know, things that are taken from cells. And I don't know, I, it's probably too much in the weeds. But I was wondering, are there some in ingredients, especially maybe you know, um, super, super Tesla in types of uh, uh, foods or ingredients that are, that are taken from cells or any kind of specific term that applies to there that we'll be hearing more of or should uh, specify this is separate from plant-based, Isaac? Just curious. Yeah, absolutely. So plant-based, which is what we do at Eclipse Foods, means that all the ingredients are coming from plants. Nothing is being grown in a lab. 
nothing like that. So we use blend of potato, oat, corn, and cassava, all ingredients that you know. Lab-grown means that you are growing cells in a lab. You're literally genetic, they're being genetically modified um, and grown in a lab. Um, so that's the two different, those are the differences there. Um, there is a difference, so Beyond Meat, for example, is all plant-based. The heme from Impossible is GMO, right? We use it at Eclipse, we're all plant-based. Um, that's okay. the difference. Okay, and Joni wants to add to that. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that. Um, I think uh, you are referring to what is now called clean meat. Um, clean meat is actually not genetically modified. They are cells taken from animal muscles, and they are they they're grown yes outside of the animal. Um, but we call it clean meat because it's literally cleaner than than conventional meat. Literally cleaner. So. You are told, right, that when you handle meat, you have to cook it very, very thoroughly. Why? Because it contains intestinal pathogens that can really, really sicken you. Um, and so you have to literally cook the crap out of your meat, literally. And I'm, excuse me, but, you know, and so I want to, you know, I, I do want to talk about clean meat. That's not what we do at the Better Meat Co., but I want to just talk about the fact that, you know, it's no longer in question that uh, factory farming is very harmful to the environment, okay? And it, it's, it's, that's not in question anymore. I think everybody can, or most people can agree on that. And so I think that we need to have a, um, you know, all of the above type of approach when we talk about alternatives to meat. If, you know, we're really concerned about our environment, our health, um, and we want to make this planet a better place, we're growing. We're going to have 9 to 10 billion people by 2050. And it's really hard to, to, to see how we're going to feed all of those people. Um, yes, clean meat sounds scary, um, but, you know, there are so many things, so many examples of technologies that did not exist 100 years ago that now we couldn't imagine living without. Um, the refrigerator being one of them, you know, we eat ice out of our freezers now before it was literally taken from a lake, you know, so there are so many things that you can think of that didn't exist back then. Um, and so I think that's why I want to stress the fact that, you know, clean meat probably won't be in the market for a really long time, but that's why it's so important to have so many alternatives. We have clean meat, we have uh, meatless meat, plant-based uh, meat, we have uh, plant-based ingredients like we do at the Better Meat Co. So I think in order to actually tackle the problems that we are facing today, we do need to take that approach. We need to think of, you know, how many alternatives can we get? Just like we have, uh, you know, alternatives to um, fossil fuels, right? We have solar, geothermal, wind power. We need to take that type of approach to solve our food sustainability uh, problems. And Amreus wants to add on to that yeah, as well. I, I was just going to comment on the uh, the clean meat label. I mean, the, the reason um, the, the, that you have the, the cleanness is because when you're when using the fermentation in the lab, you have to use a lot of antibiotics to control the, the growth of bacteria and viruses and, and things like that. So you have to have you have to constantly use those antibiotics to, to make sure that the whole thing is grown in in an in a almost a sterile environment. So that, that, that's why the, the, those differences are. But even in, in vegetables, I mean, a lot of vegetables you have to wash them, you have to clean them, you have to you know so. Um, I think the label for me, the clean meat, um, it's, um, it's, I, I don't think it's, it's, it, it reflects what it actually is. All right. So clean meat is something that 
for for better for worse is something that we'll probably be seeing more of in terms of a buzzword maybe in, in the 2020s all right next question to the mic so many definitions here we're gonna yeah this question uh my name is vincent um this question is actually for Doni and probably a good segue after that um you kind of mentioned the the one percent um Steve Jobs had a famous quote about 1% down, 99% down. Most of us, and me included right now, I'm on an iPhone, would agree that he made it past the 1%. Um, I'm curious, what are the strategies, whether it, it sounds like maybe education of things like clean meat um, and getting past maybe some buzzwords. I'm sure you heard the grumbles when you said clean meat. Um, but, you know, being a vendor, are you going to be in restaurants? Are you going to be in schools? Or, you know, what, what markets are you targeting? What other strategies are you using, maybe included in educating us, um, you know, uh, about, you know, what uh, the company's doing or what, um, you know, some of these, whether it's lab grown, whether it's plant based, whatever you want to call it, you know, what are you guys doing to maybe kind of bring this more to the forefront? I will speak directly to the Better Meat Co. Um, our mission is really to make an impact today. Uh, and so the strategies that we use is really making and creating partnerships, strategic partnerships with food service providers, restaurants, uh, meat companies, who have the same concerns that we all have here in this room. And so if we want to create better alternatives, then we want to work with you. If you want to, have, to use less meat but still provide your consumers with the things that they want to eat, but you want to make it more sustainable and retain the same flavors, you know, Taste is king in the food in the food service world. So um, you know we're we're able to actually match the flavor or even improve on it. Um, so, so that's some of the strategies that we're using. You know we really want to m create partnerships and long-lasting partnerships where we continue to innovate, continue to help them create new products that are going to take us into the future. Whether, like I mentioned, it's restaurants, food service providers, larger meat companies. Um, really, you know our our ingredients are great and they can blend into anything and actually you know I think about beyond and impossible we would love to sell to them we would love to help them also improve on their product um, so it's kind of an all all of, all of the above approach again well and just a quick follow-up I mentioned education are you uh, you know are you guys as a company doing anything to educate you know potential um, you know customers and clients or are you going into markets that may help to better educate uh, the masses yeah, that's a great question. Um, we're, sp we're in the blending business, which is a newer technology. Um, the blending business is still something that people don't quite understand. When you think blending, you think of, you know, adding mushrooms to your hamburgers or something. Um, so yes, I think education is really important. And so what we're able to provide to the partners that we work with is, you know, you get this much more fiber, you know, people want to see a little bit more nutrition in what they eat. So we provide them with those, that information. Here's the nutritional value that you're getting through our ingredients. Um, now trying to teach people what blending is, yes, it's a challenge, absolutely. But I think when people find out that, you know, you get more vegetable nutrition, you get this amount of fiber, you get less saturated fat, less cholesterol, fewer calories, then people start to understand what it is that they are gaining. Thank you. And, and I have a follow-up question uh, for you, Doni, and maybe you, Isaac, too, as well as in terms of, I'm sorry, in terms of I look at Impossible Foods and they went straight to Burger King and White Castle. You know, they're not the healthiest 
places is mentioned, but but they, I think uh, Pat Brown, the CEO of Impossible Foods says, you're not going to convince someone to change their diet. They'll change their diets if you give them something that they like better. Um, so in terms of in going to the meat eating um, audience, they went for Whoppers, right? And breakfast sausages. I think I heard or read that uh, Eclipse, you're looking at mac and cheese. So is a way of marketing and educating going for foods that are typically considered, you know, comfort food with a lot of calories and, and meat and cheese and saying, here's a way that uh, we can make them healthier or, um, you know, put plant-based and you can't taste the difference rather than starting, say, from scratch with, I don't know, some healthier product. Is marketing better by going to it with a big name uh, restaurant company with one of their top products? Is that the best way to get the message across and market? Or are, is there another way that's also good for marketing? Uh, you know, I think maybe you mentioned schools and, and kids. Um, so what are the different approaches that you think are successful and that you're, you're trying? Donnie, start, and then Isaac. You know, there are three things that matter to consumers, taste, price, and convenience. If you have all three of those, people will buy them. And that's why, you know, I greatly admire Beyond and Impossible. They're making thing, their products accessible. And that's what we're trying to do as well. Our, right now, we have a chicken nugget. We have a partnership with Purdue Farms, and they're selling chicken nuggets, chicken patties, and chicken tenders at 7,100 stores, including Walmart, which is one of the most accessible stores that you can think of. Um, and, and the whole point is to make them available to everybody. And so, you know, now, thankfully, they use our ingredients. You get a quarter cup of vegetable nutrition, less saturated fat, less cholesterol, fewer calories. Uh, you get some fiber. And yes, they are marketing very, very intelligently, really. You know, they're basically saying you get the same taste, same texture, same juiciness at the same price, but it's actually better for you. So absolutely, marketing is everything availability, price, that's what's going to get the customer interested. Is it, is it, uh, can you tell us how sales are doing? Very well. <laughs> Isaac, what about you in Eclipse? Yeah, I want to echo that. Absolutely. I think for us, it's really about meeting the market where it is. Um, if we would go out there and provide a plant-based ice cream that doesn't taste very good, there's not going to be a wide adoption. And for us, we're a very mission-driven company. And we want a product that tastes just like ice cream, that has that same mouthfeel, same experience. Um, and that's really how we're going to convince people to eat our products and have a lighter uh, environmental footprint. So, another, I mean, another point to add to that is we go into ice cream shops and we go into restaurants and our product is the same price as the dairy counterpart. So you can get the Eclipse plant-based ice cream at no more money than you can get um, the normal dairy shake. And kind of our vision is like, if every single Carl's Jr. has a Beyond Famous star, then there's no reason why they shouldn't have uh, an Eclipse soft serve or an Eclipse shake, right? If we can go on at the same price and it tastes great, we want to make it accessible for everyone. Next question to the mic, please. Hi, I have a question about the change in nutritional value during the processing process. And um, as we know, like, uh, vegetables, as, as an example, as you cut them, then the nutritional value starts declining. So you're making products that um, have to come out of a warehouse, go to a store, be in the consumer um, refrigerator for a while, and then be used. 
And does anybody have a sense of what the original nutritional value change is from the original plant to the product that you're consuming? Who wants to take that? <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, how does it, does it change and if it changes? Stephen. Um, so it'd be a hard question for me to answer exactly. Just um, be a better question for the companies producing um, the products. Um, I can tell you that in our restaurant, we do use several products that are, are manufactured by somebody else. Um, we're also very proud to make a lot of our own uh, recipes in-house. Um, our shakes, for example, we make from scratch every morning. So shakes you guys just ate or drank tonight. Um, we make those daily and we use um, the best ingredients that we can get. So we're using agave as a sweetener uh, instead of high fructose corn syrup that you might find in a, in a, a traditional fast food shake. Um, and we're, you know, we're putting good ingredients in and the best ingredients that we can, we can possibly use um, for the things that we make from scratch. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be hard, though, to speak to the actual product that's processed. All right, thank you. I know next time I I would love to get I would love to get Pat Brown on a on a panel and have him talk about uh, impossible foods and nutritional value. But that's that'll be in, in the next one. All right, and next question at the mic. Thank you, you guys. I'm learning a lot. My question is um, kind of related to that, but I was wondering from this conversation, I can't really tell. This might be ignorant. I'm sorry. If there's a difference between Burger King and what it gets in the Impossible spectrum, and then like when I go to 33rd Street Bistro, which I love their burger, is there a nutritional difference? And if so, why? Like, why couldn't we like elevate everything by just starting off at a really nutritious product? But again, sorry if that's an ignorant. If I just don't know the difference. Well, I'll just note that. Um there's a difference between, you know, a veggie burger versus what Impossible and Beyond are making. What Beyond and Impossible are making are products that are, that are intended to mimic meat. So they have different processes that go into it. Whereas if you go and get a veggie burger that you make with, you know, mushrooms or, um, I don't know, lentils, whatever, um, it, it is a different product. But, um, you know, I'd highly encourage you to go to their websites. They're actually very open about the ingredients that they use. Um, and so you can actually look up what, what exact ingredients they're using. They kind of explain to you why they use these ingredients. Um, and so if that's something that's interesting, I, I go through them a lot too. And I'd like to understand what's in my food as well. Um, more specifically for the Better Meat Co., our ingredients are really just very basic ingredients. We have a very clean label. We use things that you would find in your pantry um, and, you know, again, lentils, mushrooms, peas, uh, things like that. And so uh, we, we create a combination of these ingredients that then together uh, very, uh, are very functional in ground meat. Can I... Just add yes, Ramez, yeah. please add on. So if you, if you compare the Impossible Burger with uh, uh, real meat, what you will, uh, in terms of the same amount of weight, uh, you will see, uh, in terms of calorie, about the same, maybe a little bit higher in, in the Impossible Burger, but protein is about the same. Uh, there's a little bit more sodium in Impossible Burger than, than the real meat, but um, that's, that's the comparison that has been made. Okay, thanks. So there's not extreme... Uh, differences in terms of sodium or, I don't know, cholesterol or other basic ingredients you get in a burger that m are health concerns compared to an impossible burger? Has that been measured? I know we're talking about like all the ingredients um, in, in a, an impossible burger, but in terms of levels of um, 
I don't know, salt or fat or that kind of content. Are there notable differences? Well, there's no so, cholesterol in the Beyond and uh, Impossible burgers, so I just, yeah, there's definitely okay, no cholesterol. Okay, so cholesterol-free. <laughs> okay. Okay, good deal. Uh, next question at the mic, please. Hi, uh, um, my name's Alison Van Inenum and I'm a professor at UC Davis and I work in the GMO space. Um, and I've been kind of intrigued by the panel here tonight. Several of the members have been vehemently distancing themselves from GMOs and stressing that their product has no GMOs. And I'm kind of intrigued, I get marketing, um, but I also understand science and you know I know science is really boring, but that technology has been really useful in terms of reducing, for example, um, pesticide use globally. And so what obligation do you owe to the public to actually put out information around this technology rather than just going, oh yeah, we don't have any you know, GMOs in our product and kind of reinforcing that myth that somehow that technology is dangerous because it really hampers the ability of academic scientists to use innovation to improve the sustainability of our food production. All right, yes, and GMOs and the marketing of or disclosure of, Isaac. Yeah, happy to tackle that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we don't make any claims about the benefits or harms of GMOs. Um, we know that GMOs are not always, like you said, not always looked down as so positively in the market. Um, and for us, we just can create a product that is all plant-based and has no GMOs. So for us, it's a little cheaper to do that. Um, I don't want to, I'm not going to speak to the benefits or harms. I think that is, as you said, academia has done a great job in actually researching this space. Um, but for us, we know that our consumers ask us to not put in GMOs in our food, um, and we want to listen to them. And so we try to make everything, and we actually do make everything without GMOs. Steven. Um, Steven. I don't know that there will probably be a really solid answer from the panel on it, but I, I think it's, it's an interesting time to be eating um, in our country. Just there's, there's so much out there to read. Um, for every statistic or uh, study that you can find that says, you know, in, in very direct terms that this is the way it is, you can find another one that contradicts it completely. Um, I think it's really on each of us to do our research and eat in a way that feels good to us um, and that we feel good morally, we feel good physically, um, and that we feel that we've, we've done the, the, the research on our own and, and feel good about um, I, don't, I haven't seen, at least I personally have not seen the conclusive study on a lot of these topics. Um, and I, I think it's unfortunate. I, 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 I know that there will be more and more work done in that area. Um, and hopefully it will become a little bit of a clearer decision um, for the, the layman um, who's not as intertwined in it. Do you get asked for, do you get asked for those of you who serve or create products uh, from the general public, are there GMOs? Uh, should I be concerned about GMOs? Is that a, a topic that you get asked a lot about, Isaac? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we were just at the Fancy Food Show in San Francisco the past three weeks. I've worked trade shows for many years, and those are definitely the questions you get, at, you get asked. Are, what are the ingredients? Are they genetically modified? Um, those are two of the most common questions we get asked. All right. Uh, next question at the mic, please. Hi, my name is Nicholas Sackett, uh, California Plant-Based Alliance. Uh, one of the questions that we have is trying to get plant-based uh, companies on even footing with 
uh, animal uh, agriculture uh, company or companies that use animal agriculture products. Question for you, Isaac. You mentioned earlier that one of your goals is to make sure that your ice cream is on the same price point as dairy products. Is that because you are willing to eat your margin or is that because you are able to actually produce it for a cost that is equal to dairy? Yeah, it's because we're able to produce it at a cost that's equal to dairy. Um, we want to grow the business and if we sell at a loss, we'll never be able to grow the business and we won't ultimately have the environmental impact that we want to have. Um, because we source ingredients that are widely available um, and that are very cheap, we can produce at a cost that is equal to to dairy and that really helps us further our mission because it's not at a premium cost wherever you go. And that, thank you for that because I did have a question about cost and can plant-based uh, proteins, clean meats, coming up, uh, be considered accessible by everyone at all income levels? There was a Washington Post story. They reported that the retail price of a 12-ounce block of impossible ground plant-based meat, so that's impossible foods, uh, meat that you can buy in the stores, costs $8.99, which works out to $12 a pound. And that's about four times more expensive than most conventionally raised ground beef in the supermarket, or at least in their area, which is a little over $3 a pound. So I, I know we we do talk about some, you know, foodies and um, accessible foods and, you know, a latte may be affordable for some, but, you know, four or $5, it's still something. So in terms of like these, these foods, um, you know, impossible beyond and so forth, uh, is it, is it, I don't know if easy is the right word, but is, are these foods going to be accessible um, to the uh, widespread audience? Um, and also, I guess maybe a part two, it feels like, will these, will these um, innovators, for um, like Impossible Foods going after burger and sausage, will they go after bluefin tuna? I think there is a startup that's uh, creating uh, cells from blue, you know, they're trying to recreate bluefin tuna. Will they be going after higher end products, like foie gras or whatever? Um, so in terms of cost for an accessible public, and then are there certain higher end foods maybe that uh, that you see them trying to, to look at and uh, maybe see uh, as a uh, to recreate I guess does that make sense part one and part two so in terms of let's let's start with part one I'm sorry part one is this are these types of foods easy and accessible to create and produce and provide uh, to all income levels Doni um, so yes I think they are getting better uh, obviously, we're seeing more of the plant-based meats on the market at very accessible uh, locations. Um, you know, and one of the things that we're doing at the Better Meat Co. is partnering with these companies. We are also very cost-effective. We can produce uh, at very comparable prices, so we are able to provide our product at the same cost. And ultimately, the customer is getting an enhanced product. The more we innovate, the more we invest, the more technology is able to continue to be creative, uh, the better they'll get, the more efficient they'll get. Ultimately, every company wants to be able to sell as much of their product as possible, and they will only do that by becoming as efficient as possible. So I think we're getting there. I think that's why we need so many alternatives, and that's why we need to support our innovators. So the more you create, more scale would bring down costs, I guess, because the scale production is 
So that's something, okay. Isaac? Yeah, I would, I would just echo that. I totally agree. I mean, one of the things that we're able to do is when we can buy ingredients at a large scale, the cost comes down a great deal. Um, the cost of dairy is, usually stays pretty flat. So as we scale and we order more ingredients and scale the business and production, we'll be able to bring down our costs over time. Raise your hand if you have a question at the mic. Let's just see how many more. There's just one, there's two. Okay, so let's make those our last two and I have one last question and then. All right, so we'll start with the first one at the mic. Hi, um, so I wanted to ask, we've been talking a lot about plant-based and the environment and I was just curious to know if um, a lot of your motivations either as people or as companies are more than that, if they're uh, animal welfare based and um, if yes, do you feel that that's just alienating to talk about or is it primarily a environmental motive? I can speak to it at Burger Patch. Um, so I, I think we kind of come very holistically from a, an approach of just kindness in general. And that means kindness to our planet. That means kindness to our bodies. That means kindness to animals. Um, we try very hard, like, as I mentioned earlier, to be very inclusive. And so um, our goal is, is always to really to not ever shame or make somebody feel like what they're, they're doing or choosing to do is wrong. Um, but we want to be an option that allows them to make a more conscious decision and get it in, in, a, in a high convenient fashion. Um, so for sure, one of our, our drivers is, is certainly the welfare of animals and just kindness um, in general and being able to have a satisfying um, meal on the go without causing any harm to any, any living creature. And that um, is something that, you know, I, I think morally feels good to us but we don't ask somebody to make that choice in, in their life. We just want to be here if they, if they decide to. Jamie. Um, very similar to what Stephen was saying. Um, my personal motivations were um, animal-based, um, big animal lover. And, um, you know, like he said, with kindness and everything, I just, you know, I feel the name Pure Soul comes from, you know, trying to have a, you know, just pure intentions. And so I feel like if your, you know, intentions are pure about what you're doing, then, you know, that just helps all around. And, um, I know for us, um, I'm trying to do a lot of, um, just getting involved more with like, um, farming and things like that for animal sanctuaries. I know there's a lot of farmers that are doing that now. Um, I'd love to be on board with that. Eventually I always say this, like the stepping stone of getting started and then just being able to build on that and, you know, with the animal sanctuaries, more restaurants. Um, but also, like Steven said, it's not about shaming anyone because um, up until two years ago, I eat meat. And now it's a lot different because there's like a click that I can't, I just can't go back to that. Like once you, un, you know, see something, you can't unsee it. It's sort of like that. But um, I don't want anybody to come in to my restaurant or anywhere and feel like oh you know we're shaming you because you eat meat or something like that i actually want to get more educational about it and um, offer classes and like cooking demonstrations to show people like hey you know maybe you're interested in a plant-based lifestyle and you don't want to take three months to have to research how to you know cook it and you know the meats or foods or whatever and um, it's just really about awareness and helping people you know answer questions they might have and things like that but um Definitely very animal-based. <laughs> Joni. 
Um, I'd love to answer this question because it is very personal to me. Um, my home native country of Mexico is actually one of the most obese in the world. We have very high rates of diabetes and heart disease, and uh, a lot of it is because we eat a lot of meat. I mean, our cuisine is absolutely delicious. I would say it's the best, but um, ultimately it is based around, it is centered around meat and you know, corn and things that just aren't very good for you. So for me, you know, when I joined the Better Meat Co, I believed that this was a company that was truly focused on making a difference in the world and for my health and for the health of all of my family. I want to be able to show them, hey, I have this product that where you can still taste the deliciousness of your recipe, right? But you can have a little bit more plants. You can have a little bit more nutrition. And I think that in general, people are open to that. You know, in general, people are gonna say, if I can have my meat and eat it too, I will do that. And so that's why I joined the company because I truly believe that, that we can make a difference and we can offer products that are going to be better. All right, thank you for that question. I, I do have a question before our, our last question of the mic about environmental impact. There was an article that really struck me and I did post it on California Groundbre Groundbreakers Facebook page and it got a lot of uh, impressions or hits. Uh, this was an article from The Guardian, the, the British newspaper, um, about the rise in demand uh, for almond milk. Uh, also, can be linked to a decrease in honeybees. Uh, they're dying when pollinating the trees. And I think if many of you follow what's going on in California and, and agriculture, a lot, um, a lot of, um, well, I wonder if a lot of crops are being pulled out of the ground uh, to plant almond trees. But almond trees are a big producer uh, to the ag economy in California because the the nuts are selling everywhere. But that also means that the the, the bees that they bring in to pollinate uh, don't often come back alive. It says, someone was quoted saying, there's soldiers going to war. And that made me think, you know, that's, that's something where I think, you know, something that we think is doing really good, you know, we want to be healthier, we want to choose foods that are, you know, good for the environment. You think almond milk would be very healthy and would be the same, but then you read about honeybees, and I think we all know that that's, a, that's been a concern. So I guess my question is, it's, does this just seem like there's going to be some kind of impact no matter what, and that's just, I guess, a trade-off for uh, the, the millions, billions of us that have to survive by eating something, you know, obviously seafood in the sea and, uh, and livestock, you know, for better, for worse. Um, is it just something that all of us for eating, producing this food, it's just there's going to be some kind of trade-off, whether it's dying off of honeybees or, I don't know, creating more labs or, you know, is it just, you know, part of the, part of life? There will be something that, uh, is in decline or suffers? I know it's a very depressing question, but that honeybee thing got me with the almond milk. Now I look at almond milk and think, I don't know if I can have this again. Is that a big concern? Is that something I should be concerned about? Armeas, I'm gonna start with you. Sure, uh, well I think there is an environmental cost for everything, for any type of food production, there is gonna be an environmental cost. And so what do we do about that and what kind of trade-off are we, are we willing to accept? Uh, and you know, if, you, if you're talking about cattle production, uh, it's not just the, the, the environment, but also the whole ecosystem. 
Um, uh, in California, we are here in California, but there's a lot of fires uh, that, that are raging in, in this day and age. And what cattle do is they, they do grazing, they, they actually reduce the, the, the fuel load. So you have to look at the whole ecosystem and what ecosystem services are we, are we getting by, by using this, this, this sort of thing. So if, like, like you said earlier, if uh, Pat Brown wants to get rid of all of animals, then you know, who is going to be doing all these ecosystem services and what benefits are we getting? So if we get rid of all animals right now, the, the reduction, the, uh, the calculated reduction is going to be two point, about 2.6% in greenhouse gas emissions. That's it. That's all we can save by getting rid of, of animals. So as I mentioned earlier, in the United States, about 5% plant production, 4% livestock production. So we have to look at it into, into the whole, um, in totality and, and not just in isolation. It's a cycle. Okay. Um, Isaac, I'm going to let you go so you can start getting the ice cream ready. I'm very excited. Um, and, and I hope that your question, the last one, the mic was not specifically for Isaac. It was not. Okay. All right, so let's let's hear what it is. Uh, so this is a, a question for Professor Kuparim. There's been a lot of assumptions tonight or just talk that the plant-based meats are more environmentally friendly or low impact. Has there been any measurements or studies to compare producing natural beef versus, say, the Impossible Burger, just for example? Uh, there's very, very little work that's been done to show exactly uh, what are the environmental impacts and the assumptions that are being used uh, are also uh, something that needs to be addressed properly. So as I said, you know, livestock production, the main um, impact uh, is in terms of um, greenhouse gases is methane emissions. And methane being biogenic is just recycling. Um, it's, it's, it, it has to be counted a completely different way than, than, than it has. So if you put all this thing together, then there, there is a, a big need to look at exactly what are the environmental impacts. and not just a, a life cycle approach, um, a attributional life cycle approach that people are using now, but the consequential approach where if, not, if you don't do this, then you know, we have to do something else. So if, you, if you're gonna use plant-based, like if you want to use proteins from pea or from uh, uh, soybeans, which means that you have to produce those, those crops in larger quantities as well. Right now, the, the US um, produces enough soybeans uh, to, to cover all the uh, what, what we need in the U.S. But if you need more, then you have to go to other countries. And the biggest producers of soybeans right now are Brazil and Argentina, where you have uh, land use change uh, problems. So, you know, it's it's not very easy to to, to, to do the, those comparisons. You have to go into what are the consequences of changing these things. And you know, there are knockoff effects uh, of having that because right now we do have where Livestock is an integral part of the food system. So if you, if you eliminate that, then you're going to have a lot of other things that don't fall in, into place. So what are, what are you going to do with that? Um, in the U.S. right now, three quarters of the land, we can't use it for, for anything else but, but for, for, for grazing. So what, what is going to happen with, with all those land if, if, if there's no cattle that are not just recycling things but upcycling? You, you're getting nutrients that we cannot eat. Now, 90% of feed for animals, for example, is something that we cannot eat, 90% in, uh, globally. So you know, they're actually providing a lot more food and nutritious food and essential uh, nutrients and all that. Uh, but you know, we have to do it in a, in a responsible way. 
All right, last question for the four panelists up here. I'll, I'll answer this one for Isaac, because I think I know what his answer would be. Um, it's going to be a quick one, too. Uh, it feels like in terms of, uh, we were talking about catchphrases and uh, uh, you know names of foods that are very popular now, we may hear down the road, impossible burger, soy latte, almond milk. What will be the next uh, what will be the next hot food in terms of plant-based, clean meat, or so forth that we'll be seeing the next year, the next decade? Like, for example, I was reading, I had mentioned Finless food uh, in the East Bay. They're creating that lab culture bluefin tuna because uh, bluefin is a very rare, nearly extinct fish, but very in demand, I guess, for sushi. So they're they're trying to put that um, in restaurants, lab cultured bluefin. Tufts University, Tufts, T-U-F-T-S, I, I think they're on the East Coast. They're growing insect cells to create sp food-specific items like cricket meat, that's, that's what they're calling it, and uh, uh, bug protein from insect cells. I think we read about how um, there's uh, a trend now to eat you know, fried crickets and so forth, and I, th I think that's very popular down in southern Mexico. But cricket meat might be something we'll see. So, or maybe not, I don't know. But based on these, you know, what you're seeing in, in terms of your roles of like looking um, to, to um, research these foods, uh, create them, provide them to uh, people who want to buy them, what will be the next soy latte? Will it be cricket meat? Will it be lab culture bluefin tuna? What, what will we see the next, you know, two, three, ten years that you think will be the next Impossible Burger? And I'm going to start with Stephen, and we'll go down... I know, I'm putting you on the spot first. That's a big question. Um, I would probably give a general answer. I, I think that we will continue to see more of the, the mainstream foods that are enjoyed uh, on a, a mixed diet um, being recreated in alternate forms um, that you know, are, are being done so for animal welfare or for an environmental impact or for health. Um, so I think it's just it's going to continue to grow. What I'm probably most curious to see if if the the trend in um, just plant based options continues to grow. And that you know if you look five years ago to you know this discussion, it, it would probably not not be able to even happen. But definitely wouldn't be with so many different topics. Um, so seeing that growth, and we're really excited to kind of help help introduce the population the best that we can to it. Um, but I'm really looking forward to, to watching and seeing how that growth continues. Don't eat. Blended meat. <laughs> Blended meat. Hermes. Well, uh, I saw a, a prediction that in the next, I think by 2030, by 2040, um, about 40% of meat would actually be cell-cultured meat. That's, that's just a prediction. But uh, I was actually surprised to see when uh, Burger King introduced uh, the, the Impossible Burger, the sales of the real burger stay the same. I thought they would go down, but they actually stay the same. So I don't know, maybe the real meat will continue to, to grow as well. And speaking of seaweed, that red, red seaweed or gray seaweed, uh, I was reading how, some, well actually some guy at a party told me how algae is the next hot thing. Is that that we'll be eating? Seaweed, anything, well, do you think? based on your research? Well, I'm, I'm interested in seaweed because of uh, its impact on, on the cows. Uh, on ca on cows. So it's all it, going to go to the cows. It, it reduces methane emissions. That's, that's great Less for, for us. us. Better for the cows. But, okay. But, but Just, it's good for us too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and Jamie. Um, I, again, Stephen said it way better than I can. Um, I 
I don't know of a particular product necessarily. What's going on your menu that uh, you just really want to explode and have everyone buy that we have <laughs> had not yet seen in Sacramento? Um, I guess I would say um, like mac and cheese kind of thing. That's a big comfort food staple and it has to be good. It can't be, eh, you know. Because I think I was going to name for Isaac, uh, uh, Eclipse mac and cheese because I know that's something that they're they're thinking of next. So I guess plant based mac and cheese or vegan mac and cheese. Okay, all right. Well, we'll we'll keep looking to see uh, what comes up on the shelves and on the menus. Um, but thank you very much, panelists, for giving your insight into a really interesting area of food. And thank you very much for coming. It's been a great discussion. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Food for Thought conversation about alternative proteins was held on January 21, 2020 at Antiquity Midtown in Sacramento. Thanks to our panelists, Jamie Cavanaugh, Doni Kirkendall, Isaac Goldstein, Armias Kibreab, and Stephen Leopold for the great conversation. Thanks also to Antiquity Midtown owners Marcy Hose and Sharon Wilson for hosting this event. Special thanks goes to Burger Patch in Sacramento and Eclipse Foods in Berkeley for supplying the delicious and all-plant-based burgers, shakes, and ice creams at our event. And to our volunteers, Nicole Grant-Krieg, Rodrigo Ramirez, Nate Graham, and Janelle Justinson for making the event run smoothly. To Caleb Clark at Kickstart Audio for recording and producing the podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.